and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing tracking our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And this is the third in our Influencers series. This week, I want to do another Air Force officer, but this time it's a US Air Force officer. This is a relatively unknown figure, I would say, outside of military spheres, although many of our listeners may well have come across some of the concepts and ideas that he generated. I was going to say, I think it was interesting. I was talking to a friend this morning about the, the Leonard Cheshire episode, and I was surprised, and he said, oh, I've not really heard about Cheshire what was interesting to me was if you've not heard about Cheshire, to your point, I think this is someone you will not have heard of before. You may have heard about some of the concepts, but even then, as with all of these people that we talk about, there is so much more to them. And again, just to sort of tease you one last time, one of the, the concepts that he's most famous for, we've mentioned multiple, multiple times, but when we were talking about what we might call this episode what was interesting to me and as i did a little bit more research so as you've probably noticed each of us leads a different one and does the research and thinks about it so this is my opportunity to sit back and let gareth educate me to some degree on this person but he sort of talked about him who has been described by some people as the greatest strategist since sun tzu now we will see well, we'll, we'll see but but just that idea that if you say the word Sun Tzu to everyone, they all have some vague concept of who this is. And if you then talk about our topic today, I, just that idea that in the same breath you might even think about them, to me was fascinating. Okay, we've teased them enough. Well, Gareth. we can't tease them because they will already have seen the title because they were clicked on the podcast. So we've fallen into that trap of thinking this is some big reveal, but of course it's not. So, yeah, is Colonel John Boyd the greatest strategist since Sun Tzu? We've already sort of introduced him and, and why we're interested. I think it's worth, before we start getting into who he was and, and the things that he did, it's worth pointing out that Steve Jobs, undoubtedly a great business leader. Lots of controversy, lots of things to explore about why and what's good and what's bad and would things have been good even if he wasn't an arsehole and all that kind of stuff. Leonard Cheshire, undoubtedly a brilliant wartime leader. Cheshire Homes and the other charities, the Sue Ryder charity, indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. John Boyd, a Marmite figure, I would say, but not, not in terms of personality, although that may well be the case as well, but in terms of legacy. There are people who think he is the greatest strategist since Sun Tzu and has revolutionised not just the way militaries think about strategy, but the way that businesses operate, the world of sport, a whole load of things that are attributed to the thinking of John Boyd. And then there's a whole load of people who think that this is all just over-edged and he was just a man with an ego who actually didn't really create much at all. And it's fascinating because he hasn't become this household name, but some of his ideas have grown and have been taken developed run with there is definitely an influence that his legacy has had 
And what I'd like to explore over the next hour is how much of that was him and how much of that is the idea of him. To get ahead of this, because we, we I guess we tackled this at various times, the influencers, Today is not about was he great, was he not great. I don't. I think that's a bit of a reductive statement, and we'll leave other people to have clickbaity things. And I maybe I shouldn't have said the Sun Tzu comment, but I think it's a really good example of what are the ideas, how did he come across them, what impact have they had, and then perhaps most importantly, how do we reflect and how do we develop those ideas a little bit further? By the way, I've got to say this, this is breaking the fourth wall. Does a podcast have a fourth wall? I don't know. Yeah, so, why not? As you know, at various times, we're normally based in Oxfordshire, and then at various times, we all go to glamorous places. I think I was in a travel-in in Birmingham at one point. Gareth is in uh, Canada at the moment working. So Gareth, you have to explain, while I've been talking, you've been popping on and off microphone, as it were. Gareth, what have you been doing? Yeah, so oddly, I'm I'm in this hotel room and it's where I'm living for the next month. And like a lot of North American hotel rooms, it's more of a suite than just a room. So it's got a fridge and a microwave and, you know, I can sustain myself roughly as I go. The one thing it doesn't have is a kettle. There isn't, and, and, and it's not because, you know, in North America, they don't, they don't drink tea, they only drink coffee, because there's no coffee machine either. So every time I need to make myself a cup of tea or coffee, I have to take a Tupperware box, fill it with tap water, and then heat it up in the microwave to make a cup of coffee. But I have managed to do it, and I am now drinking a glorious cup of maple-flavoured coffee. I can only apologise to John Boyd and, and his forebears or that we're we're distracting from a conversation about John Boyd. But I'd like to think it's the strategic ability to adapt in uncertainty that was merited mentioning that, that in the face of no kettle, Gareth is able to improvise and still make a cup of coffee. Anyway, let's get back. Incredibly to tenuous there, Chris. <laughs> Enough of all of that. And I really hope this doesn't get cut in the final edit. Let's get back to John Boyd. Tell us a bit about Colonel John Boyd, because I knew a little bit about the concept. Yeah. And then, as is always the case, you just do a little bit of scratching, and it turns out that was one small piece of his life. So, Gareth, over to you. Tell us about John Boyd. Okay, so I was first introduced to the, the work of Colonel John Boyd when I was a young officer going through basic training at the Commando Training Centre down in Limpster. And we were introduced to this idea of the OODA loop, O-O-D-A, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And that was it, really. And that was sort of explained to us as a, a way that people, individuals and groups solve problems. They observe what's happening around them. They orient what they are observing to their lived experience and their collective group experience. They then make decisions about how to respond to whatever it is they've observed, and then they act upon those decisions. And the way it was explained was that is a loop that takes a period of time. And if it's an, an instinctive thing, you are I don't know, driving a vehicle and somebody cuts you up, you go through that OODA loop as a system one kind of subconscious process you observe it happening your body responds you get all these you know chemicals firing off you get that adrenaline hit your body processes what's happening and you 
swerve the, the wheel out of the way. You've got an OODA loop in milliseconds. Or if you are a planning staff in a battalion in a war zone somewhere, you receive the information from your reconnaissance teams, you orient it with what you already previously had understood about the battle picture, your previous experience of operations and warfare. You make decisions as a collective group about how you're going to respond, and then you send out your orders and your units go out and, and do the action. So you have done a noodle loop as well. And the argument was, if you can be faster than your competitor at going through that loop, you will change the external circumstance, you'll change the environment faster than they will have completed their loop. And therefore, all of their observation and orientation to that observation will be slightly out of date. And therefore, their, their decisions and actions will be, at best, less relevant. They are always reacting to something else rather Quite. than... That was described as being inside somebody's hoodlip, getting inside somebody's hoodlip. So that was my sort of introduction to this, this chat. This guy had created this, and that was that. The Oodaloop kept popping up, and, and people kept referring to it, and I kept seeing it in bits of doctrine. And it struck me as, as quite a reductionist kind of thing. It was kind of obvious, actually. But people talked about this John Boyd being great, and I'd heard these phrases like, you know, the greatest strategist since Sun Tzu. Later in my career, when I started looking at decision theory, and I became quite focused on intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, I think I've mentioned that before, and this was a particular area that I was working in. How do you understand what's going on in the battle space to make better decisions? I started to pick up some books and look more deeply at this character, John Boyd. And it became very apparent that everything we talked about and all this hype around the OODA loop was really scratching the surface of a far, far deeper story. So John Boyd, he's best known as a fighter pilot. Okay, He was a fast jet pilot at the very dawn of the fast jet age. So he joined the Army Air Force in 1944 or 45, towards the end of the Second World War. He only completed training as an air technician at the very, very last few months of the Second World War and didn't really see any wartime service. He then stayed in the, in the Army Air Force for a few years whilst also graduating from university. And I think this is quite important. He did two undergraduate degrees, one in economics and one in industrial engineering. So he had a found, an academic foundation in you know, hard science and economics. And that leads on later on to some of his thinking, which I think is quite important. He then commissioned into, uh, into the Air Force as a pilot and briefly served in Korea, in the Korean War, as an F-86 pilot. So the Korean War was the first time, really, we'd seen jet-on-jet dogfights. So in the Second World War, we'd just seen the start emerging of, of the jet age, but Korea was the first time we saw jets fighting other jets. And they were taking Second World War dogfight tactics, but now doing it with jet engines, so at greater speeds. Everything is faster, everything's harder. These pilots were learning how to adapt their tactics. John Boyd did two months in Korea doing combat operations and then was selected to go to the fighter weapons school. 
the fighter weapons school and being a fighter weapons instructor in the air force is similar to the top gun school in the u.s navy okay for those of the audience who've seen the top gun films which i'm assuming is everybody this is akin to to that so he's gone off to be fighter weapons instructor he gets top student so you know he is effectively maverick from top gun one and he's asked to stay on as an instructor at the fighter weapons school so now he's an instructor of the new fighter instructors and it's here that he earns the moniker 42nd boyd 42nd boyd because he had a standing bet that he could beat any of his students from a defensive position so from a position of disadvantage he could beat any student in a dogfight in 40 seconds which which is quite a claim obviously brilliant pilot brilliant tactician in you know brilliant stick man as a fighter pilot but hopefully our listeners are sort of going well what, what how does that how's that relevant to, to being a strategist like Sun Tzu as I continue these conversations I increasingly get the sense that you as a leader you have to have competencies in multiple areas not, not necessarily all areas, but multiple areas. And what, as I've learned a little bit more about John Boyd, and as the example you've just given is, if it was just about his ability as a stick man in a fighter aircraft, I'm not sure he'd be 42nd Boyd. Actually, it's this combination of hands-on, coalface activity, and then, and, and I maybe I'm preempting slightly, a person who is curious about how things work. Because if I understand how things work, that potentially gives me an advantage. And so what I thought was interesting was it was rather than instinctively, I'm going to win every time. And I'm sure there was an element of that. Actually, there was just as much I need to understand. Maybe this is too stri- much of a stretch. The philosophy of how to win, or at the very least, I need to understand the physics. So your example about the degrees he got, I thought was really interesting. Exactly that, which was there is the hard engineering degree. I have to build a piece of metal that supports a thing, but then with a more sort of thoughtful degree about how things might work and how things might come together. So I, I liked the juxtaposition of just being the meathead pilot, ah, kill everything. If you want to be the best, you actually have to be a little bit richer. Well, I think this is a really important point because at this time, John Boy hasn't developed the OODA loop, hasn't come up with any of his theories that are now relatively well known. So he's got a series of lectures called Creation and Destruction. He does come up with a theory later called the Energy Maneuverability Theory. Now, this is very important and we'll come on to that in a minute. But at the time he's at the Fighter Weapons School, he is a brilliant stick man. You know, he's a fighter pilot. He's a single-seater aircraft. But he's wondering in his spare time why something that is largely about mechanics is influenced so much by the individual pilot flying. Can you reduce the winning formulas down to, to exactly that, to a series of steps that in a given situation you will win if you do X, Y, and Z? Or is there something more to this? And I think the fact that he'd done engineering, which is a, you know, a very hard science, a very reductionist down to maths, physics, but also done economics, which is about systems and about behaviours, 
I think probably started to lead him on this thought journey. And, and it was at this time that he started to come up with these ideas around the relationship between the person flying the aircraft and the capabilities of the aircraft itself, the mechanics. And, and on that, and this this shows the sort of the limits of my knowledge. I think there was some implication that the two key aircraft of the time was uh, a Russian aircraft, the MiG-15, and the F-86. You can correct me here. I think the implication was on paper the F the MiG-15 was a better aircraft, and yes. so notionally the the MiG-15 should win or at least hold its own. And yet, what they were starting to see was that the F-86 and to your point, the combination of the the machine and the pilot was starting to win more. And I that was almost the point at which he said, "Well, hang on a minute." It's a bit more than just what engine you've got and what lift you've got and what power to weight ratio. If you something else is at play here, if I can understand that, I can do more of that. Yeah. So this is where I think a key theme will keep coming up in this discussion, because yes, you're right. the The MiG fifteen on paper was a better aircraft. It flew faster. It could climb higher. It had bigger more guns it did almost everything in terms of attributes better than the f-86 saber the two things that the f-86 had mechanically that were or physically that were different and potentially better was the mig-15 the pilot sat deep into the cockpit so that he's protected by the armor of the shielding of the of the of the airframe itself, whereas in the F-86, the pilot's more exposed and therefore sits higher and there is a bigger bubble canopy. And lots of people have then led on to talk about the fact that you can observe what's going on around you far better. The second thing is it turns faster in the air, so it can make sharper movements. Now, this is where, when we're talking about Boyd, we've got to be quite careful about what is it that Boyd did, what were his ideas, and what is subsequent thought or legend or mythology that's been applied to Boyd. So he didn't spend a lot of time in combat. There's no evidence that he actually went up against any MiGs in career at all. So there is a lot of misnomer, I suppose, about Boyd being a fighter ace and learning all of this stuff from his lived experiences fighting MiGs over the Central Highlands of Korea. That's just simply not true. However, collectively, the US Air Force were learning lessons and collectively they were identifying that they were winning against these aircraft. And basically, there's, there's three things that gave them the advantage. They could see better from the cockpit of this aircraft because they were higher, they had better observation. They could turn faster in the air so they could be more maneuverable and therefore change their position quicker. And thirdly, the American way of war, absolutely across the whole of defense, which is a reflection of American way of life, was freer. And by that, I mean the pilots were given more freedom to make choices about what they did, whereas the Korean pilots and the Chinese pilots and some of the Soviet pilots that were flying in Korea were all from a communist background and had very, very centralized commands and very dogmatic process. Yeah. So we've got to be really careful about 
how much of this is Boyd thinking and how much of this is just collective US Air Force thinking, driving force that led to this idea that changing the circumstance quickly and being maneuverable gives you a significant advantage over your opponent in a tactical combat situation. So just, just before we talk more about either those concepts or Boyd, I, I watched a little video. I mean, when, whenever we do these things, I think it's always nice to see the man or the woman and, and, and see them, actually hear them talking in their own words. Yeah. In that little clip, I spent five minutes watching it. He, he was talking about taking disparate concepts and combining them to create a new idea. He said, imagine a bicycle, imagine a boat, imagine a, and all of a sudden when you put yeah. an element yeah. of those concepts together, you come up with a jet ski, or in that case, I think it was a, a snowmobile. But I think that is, that's a fundamental thing about leadership, which is whether or not Boyd lived it and experienced it or not. So Cheshire was very much, he experienced it. And so he yeah. learned experience. Whether or not you're the person that leads from experience, you don't need to be. You don't always need to be. So what John Boyd talked about almost indirectly in the talk I watched was a leader's ability to abstract ideas and combine them in different ways. And in fact, by accident, going back to Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs was famed for saying there are no new ideas left. We have thought of all the ideas. The only thing that is left is remix. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my point there is how much of it was his synthesis and how much was other people's synthesis is still a little bit unknown. One of the difficulties about John Boyd was whilst he synthesised ideas from a range of subjects, he was a prolific reader. He wasn't an academic. He didn't read particularly uh, in-depth academic journals or papers. He would read synopses or even comics there was a whole load of, in the 1950s and 60s, comics that were quite reductionist around quite complex mathematical or scientific ideas. And so he didn't have the depth in some of these subjects to be able to point to the origin of somebody else's thought. Secondly, because he wasn't an academic, he also didn't do a lot of writing stuff down. He didn't publish a lot of papers. In fact, there's only one published paper from John Boyd and most of what we're left with are second person accounts of Boyd's lectures and discussions, handwritten notes, acetate slides and then later some early PowerPoint but largely this is an erratic collection of sort of notes, thoughts and secondhand ideas and, and secondhand accounts of him talking rather than an academic body of knowledge. And so, effectively, there are those who think Boyd is you know, the greatest strategist since Kung Fu. You cannot fault Boyd. And they are almost cultish in their ideology of, which, which is ironic because the one thing that Boyd talks about is the fact that you need to be flexible and open to new ideas and dogma is the, the evil of creation and destruction but they are dogmatic in their sort of reverence to Boyd and then there are people on the other side of the camp who are you know Boyd was nothing but a charlatan who would steal other people's ideas say things because they sounded clever without fully understanding them and actually was fairly hollow and shallow and there was not much to his thought and, and the reality I think is you can pick and choose what you like 
from the record because it's so scant and yet so broad that you can build your own narrative. What well, I think is important for us is that we don't make that judgment, but we just keep exploring how it's affected people's ideas since. I was going to say, I mean, and again, we're not here to say good or bad. That's not very interesting. But I think in the first thing to say in terms of impact is his theories on air combat, frankly, have driven air combat theory and how people fight with aeroplanes for 50 years. I mean, things have evolved, but whether or not he he borrowed from other people, he said one thing is clear is that the the way that people fight aeroplanes and we'll come on to how this is not just this is not just a, a mildly interesting episode about people fighting airplanes, but how this actually has impacted other people. So there's a lot there. We, we, we're coming up for a break, and I wonder whether this is a good time. We've we've talked about how he started to come up with these concepts about how you do this. Maybe let's dip into the Udo loop. And I'm really nervous that we don't spend too much time because I think there really is an episode on its own for this. I think we can do a whole episode on the Udo loop, but I think yeah, a quick dive into what it is and, and what the misconceptions are around it and then we can get back to some of the other ideas that he had and some of the other influence he had just before we leave i want to leave you with the uh I, i'm a great fan of nicknames i don't think that that's a something i put on my cv necessarily uh, but john boyd had a number of nicknames and my favorite and you probably know why more than i do but my favorite one was genghis john genghis Gen john yeah, he was also known as obviously 42nd Boyd, Genghis John, and the Mad Major. Doesn't that um, isn't that interesting though? The fact that people have got nicknames for you and it's not just one. I wonder yeah. if that's a little snapshot of the man. Genghis John, that indicates a man who doesn't take falls gladly or lightly. And you know, the mad major. There's this element of Maverick. And I I yes. you know, you said he's like Maverick from Top Gun. I would have loved to have again. I think I think what we've realized from this uh, podcast is that if only we could have had time machines, we would have gone back and, and spent a bit more time. But I yeah, that... well, after the break, let's before we get into Oodaloop, let's explore those nicknames and the relationship with the, the character of Maverick from Top Gun a little bit more because I'd like to I'd like to unpack the two sides of that a little bit. But yeah, let's take a break and we'll get back to dissecting John Boyd after the break. Brilliant, see you in a bit. Welcome back. In the very last moments of the first half of the episode, Gareth surprised me by saying we should look at John Boyd and compare him to Maverick from Top Gun. I didn't see that coming for this episode, but well, we, we, we talked a bit about the nicknames, Genghis, Genghis John, the Mad Major. Yeah, he was known as 42nd Boyd at the Fighter Weapons School because of this claim that he could defeat any student in 40 seconds. I think the fact that he was an instructor at the Fighter Weapons School, straight away there is a, a clear comparison to Maverick in Top Gun. In the first film, he is on the weapon school, isn't he? He's a student. And actually, he doesn't get top student. Iceman does. Boyd did. But he is, he is this character who wants to fight against the dogma of the wider system. He wants to show 
the the flair of human ingenuity and spirit that overcomes the more like Iceman is this boring character who you know follows the the process and is a better pilot and but Maverick's the more interesting character uh, and he was known as Genghis John because Boyd was a difficult character he didn't suffer fools gladly and and the 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 cultists that you know I, I've talked about that sort of put Boyd on this pedestal and refer to the altar of John Boyd will look back at that and say you know that shows that he he was brave enough to stand up to this bureaucratic or he was an arse yeah there's a lot of accounts to say he was an incredibly arrogant man who was difficult to get on with isn't isn't the clear statement there though that if you said to someone write down on a piece of paper your perfect leader whatever you mean by leader that that the answer that most people would pluck out of their sort of out of their heads is this one-dimensional lovely nice genius person and i think as we've looked through particularly um steve jobs but now boyd and a little bit cheshire a little bit cheshire it turns out there are plenty of flaws and that even the flaws were a part of their success in an odd way well i i think there's an interesting uh, and, and of course, we can't go back. We can't really understand some of the decisions that were made, and we can't do counter counterfactual histories. But it's interesting that if Boyd was this great tactical fighter pilot, you know, if he he obviously was very very good, he was top of his class at the weapons school. But if he was so good, why was he not then during the Vietnam War leading a fighter squadron in aerial combat operations and you know, escorting the bombers and doing combat because the Americans needed great pilots. The US Air Force, in fact, the US military didn't cover themselves in glory in the Vietnam War. So what is it that led the Air Force to decide that actually John Boyd would be better placed in a management role in on an airbase in Thailand, far away from the operational theater? And is it perhaps something about the fact that his personality, whilst whilst technically was a really, really good stick man, he wasn't the charismatic leader that was needed to run combat operations. I don't know. No, but it but you you, you, you raise a, a an interesting point and we've we've spoken about this in a couple of episodes recently, which is, you know, we we've we've done one, I don't know if this has gone out yet, but we've we've done one around the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer. And the implication was there was 120,000 people. And we talk about Oppenheimer as the center of this. Who were the people behind the scenes that actually made the trains run on time, that made sure the pens turned up? And that? And I wonder whether there's an element here, and I, and I want to extend it onto a, a broader leadership idea, which is it is plausible, and I, I'm guessing here, that a group of people said, John Boyd has these skills, and he's very good at this, but he's not very good at that. And yeah. therefore, were there people, was, was he put into a system where the weaknesses were countered by someone else? And turning that into a very modern thing, and I people have talked about this a lot. And for me, I've personally found this one of the more difficult things to do, which is to say, as leaders, we should understand what we are good at and what we are not good at. 
Yeah. And if you are not good at something, that's okay. But you need to, in inverted commas, compensate for that. Yeah. So bringing this back to Boyd, whether he recognised that or not, I think he's lost in the annals of history. But his reputation is as a great fighter pilot. So if he wasn't good at commanding, if he wasn't good at the leadership aspect of being a fighter pilot, which potentially is the case, he was the mad major, he was, you know, Genghis John, he rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. And the Air Force would recognise that, and that's why he ended up doing some slightly different jobs. Then why is his reputation now all about being a fighter ace, all about being this brilliant fighter pilot who synthesised these great lessons from being a great fighter pilot to wider strategy? Let's, let's move on to, to some of the, the impact he had later on. So he worked with a, a guy called Thomas Christie, who was a mathematician who, together with Boyd, they created this energy maneuverability theory. And this was a new way of effectively working out the composite of a whole load of variables about aircraft design that would allow for effectively a score on how maneuverable an aircraft could be. So up until this point, aircraft were designed by you know, things like wing speed, thrust, lift, you know, all of these aeronautical kind of concepts and ideas. Um, and he created a way of putting all of them together to be able to say this aircraft with all of these attributes will be this maneuverable. And that was really, really instrumental in changing the way that aircraft are designed, but it also changed the way that aircraft were flown from a tactics perspective. So this was quite revolutionary. Uh, and this is absolutely categorically something he actually did rather than the legacy of Boyd. So that's great. And that led on to the way that the US Air Force designed the F-15, arguably the way that the US Navy designed the F-14, uh, the F-16. There's some indications that he, he was involved in some way with the F-18. So all of these, you know, very successful air projects as a result of his working alongside a mathematician. And again, this was him starting to get this idea of this is not just about the hard mechanics, this is about the mechanics and the operator, the human dynamic, and starting to think about systems. And that led him post his Air Force career from the 1960s, he then went off to start thinking about these lessons applied more generally to problem solving in competitive environments. And this is where the OODA loop comes from. So we talked about the OODA loop at the very beginning, and I said I was taught it as this loop. And it's often depicted as these four elements, observe, orient, decide, act. It's drawn in a circle, and you observe something, you orient that observation to your previous experience, you decide what you're going to do, you act. And if you can do that faster than the enemy, then you're going to win. And that's an overly reductive view, and that's an overly reductive view even of what Boyd thought at the time. And we've kind of taken that because it's easy to understand, and you'll see loads and loads of stuff. If you Google OODA loops, or if you type it into YouTube, there are loads of videos of you know, police officers taking the OODA loop and showing how you can apply it to hostage rescue situations or 
a traffic stop or managers talking about OODA loop and how it's going to make your business really profitable. And, and, and they're all like five minute videos that show this cycle, but Boyd never drew it as a circle. He drew it as a far more complicated diagram. And he also recognized that it wasn't complete, that he didn't fully, hadn't fully completed a theory. He was working through synthesizing a whole load of different ideas, but effectively, rather than being a theory of how to be competitively advantaged using this idea of the OODA loop, it was simply a way of saying, this is how people and groups respond to external stimulus and change. And once you understand that, you can start to see how this relates to other things, such as entropy, such as thermodynamics, such as economics. And it was a it was a, a vehicle from which he could then synthesize a whole load of deeper and more complex ideas. I was going to say, and I I really like this idea, which is this is his attempt to understand how the world works. Because once you understand how the world works, we can now talk about the implications and how you might change things. And I I just wanted to go back because I think your point about we made a big thing about influence as John Boyd is an influencer. And we've talked about, you know, Cheshire and others that their work extended outside the thing that you might know them for. The conversations so far have been a very military centric thing. But the idea of the OODA loop is something which actually extends way beyond that, where uh, litigators, uh, you know, lawyers talk about the OODA loop. Businesses, as you've said, talk about the OODA loop. And in fact, the one that maybe we can touch on just a little bit because I can't resist it is. Dominic Cummings, allegedly the architect of the Brexit exit, irrespective of your views on this, he was a massive proponent of the OODA loop, and he posited that it was this theory that John Boyd had introduced about the OODA loop, which meant that they were successful in their Brexit campaign. So just in terms of, if you think, well, isn't it awfully nice to hear about fighter pilots? This concept or the, the the things that have evolved from this concept are very, very real and in 2016 had a major impact on all of our lives. So I think yeah. it, it goes to the point of how much influence this still has today or his work still has today. And as we'll, we'll maybe spend a little bit more time on is, and it wasn't just then the Uda loop as well. There were other concepts as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what... What's interesting is you you touched on there a couple of examples of where it's not only you know, endured but also had a profound effect on you know people's view of systems thinking and and from my experience and research around this the the, the people that look at the OODA loop as a simple four step circle and say you know all you've got to do is get around that circle faster than your adversary and you're going to win miss the point. And the people who explore the deeper theories behind it, do a little bit of reading around what Boyd was actually talking about, then apply it in a very different way. So if we go back to this idea of in, in Korea, American aircraft would, were defeating the MiG-15s in the air at a ratio at one point, there's contention over the stack, but at one point it was arguably at a rate of 10 to 1. But yeah, we were shooting down, or the Americans were shooting down the, the Chinese and Korean pilots at a much, much greater ratio. 
uh, and people wanted to know why. Because on paper, you know, better aircraft. And was it that they had this OODA loop drawn on a post-it note stuck on their canopy of, of their aircraft? And they were going through this process, observing, you know, better than the Korean pilots, orienting to the situation better than the Korean pilots, deciding to act faster and better and then acting uh, and therefore disrupting the Korean pilot's abilities to observe and orient to, to what's happening. And effectively, no, no, it wasn't. We've already talked about it. This relationship between the wider systems. So Boyd was really interested in thermodynamics, physics, culture, entropy. He was really interested in genetics. He was really interested in a whole range of things. And the point he would have made was, this is not about the pilots, you know, doing an OODA loop. This is about the system doing an OODA loop. The fact that we built an aircraft with a with a bigger bubble canopy means that they can see what's happening slightly better. They will get a better sense of when aircraft come up behind them than the MIGs do. And in some circumstances, that will give them a slight edge. The fact that we come from a liberal Western culture where we're not afraid to speak out, we're not constrained in having freedom of ideas, means that we will orientate differently to certain situations. That will give us a slight edge. The fact that we are used to making decisions and we train our pilots to make decisions in the air rather than following dogmatic rules of engagement means that they'll just be slightly better and more comfortable doing it they'll probably be slightly less influenced by the worry about if they get it wrong, how will they be judged? How will they be punished? So these are systems of far more complicated things. And that was the point Boyd was trying to make. And the fundamentally, the misapprehension is if you go around the cycle faster than your adversary, you're going to win. Actually, Boyd's main point about this was what he called fast transience, which was about being able to change your mind faster, not necessarily acting faster. And he talks a lot about tempo here. And if you think about what tempo is, tempo is not about speed. It's about acceleration or deceleration. It's about the change of speed. And his argument is you don't beat an adversary by being faster you beat an adversary by being unpredictable and by being open to new information. I think that is such a fundamental lesson. I, I, by the way, I agree, of course, entirely about this idea that the reductionist idea of if you go fast and the other person, you will win. That is not always the case. But I, I, as you were talking, I could just hear go fast and break things. <laughs> you know, that, that was the that was the mission statement internally at Facebook for all those years. And I'm and you know, you hear it again with Elon Musk and Twitter, go fast, go fast. And I think that is such an excellent reminder that speed in itself is not the the panacea. And we've had other conversations which I find myself, damn you, Gareth, I find myself repeating, which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And so, and it's, it. what I'm not saying is that going fast doesn't help you win. That the, the Dominic Cummings example was they would do things at a pace 
which disrupted the opposition. So they were unable to gain traction. They were unable to have a strategy. They were reacting. So in this case, speed was a considerable part of their success. But in itself, that doesn't it, make the cake delicious to use. Yeah, it, it's not. It, it's, the, it's the tempo, though, isn't it? It was, it was going fast at a point that changes the circumstance to the point where you dislocate the adversary, but then slowing right down stopping taking stock learning and i think there, there's a couple of diagrams where uh, in boyd's notes where he has instead of saying decide he said hypothesize and instead of act he said test that that's a light bulb moment where you recognize that this is not go around the cycle to make a better decision this is go around the cycle to learn more and you by by accepting new information you can then come up with a slightly tighter refined hypothesis you can test that hypothesis and then you can see how it affects the situation and make a judgment as to whether you want to continue doing that whether you want to do that faster or whether you want to go in a different direction and there's i've talked to before on this podcast about the Kinefin framework the idea of looking at complex problems so these complex complicated and obvious problems and then there's chaos as well um, and this was this is an, an idea that was developed by Cynthia Kurtz and David Snowden David Snowden who has taken that and run with it and created loads of really really good academic papers and theories off the back of it talks a lot about Boyd in his thinking and and I think there's, there's a relationship there because this is what Boyd is talking about in terms of systems and and when we talk about systems and they're systems that involve people and behavior, they are by definition, complex systems. There is unpredictability, there is change in tempo, you don't have in mechanical systems. And we're gonna keep coming back to fighter aircraft because this was the, the, the experience that Boyd relates everything to, but where you, where you compare the MiG-15 to the F-86, you're comparing an empty aircraft. You're comparing thrust, you're comparing flight speed, you're comparing rate of climb, you're comparing weapons. What you're not comparing is an aircraft pilot system. And once you put a pilot in it with their lived experience, with their behaviours, with their attitudes, with their understanding, with their cognitive abilities, you suddenly have a different thing to compare. So an F-86 with an American trained pilot versus an, a MiG-15 with a Korean trained pilot is a different comparison to a MiG-15 and an F-86. I think there is this broader message, um, which we've echoed so many times, which is if someone comes to you with an algorithm for being a great leader or an algorithm to run the business, don't mistake complexity for complicated or for lots going on. So I, I, I love the idea that people get, you know, their entire businesses around the OODA loop. And to your point, the OODA loop is the beginning and not the end. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to emphasize what you'd said, because I think I've got, I've got some bullet points. And I think these came from one of his presentations around the OODA loop. And it adds a little bit to the, the topic, but I think what it captures is this idea of a complex system. So he says, compress own time and stretch out adversary time. So it's not just, can we do it faster? Can we yeah. make them do it slower? Generate unequal distributions as a basis to focus moral, mental, and physical effort for local superiority and decisive leverage. 
that isn't just make your decision faster. There are elements of morality, mental, physical effort. Diminish own friction. I love this one. Own friction, or he talks in terms of entropy, and magnify adversary friction or entropy. Operate, this is, I mean, this is the heart of what we said. Operate inside adversary's own OODA loop. Or, and this is the second one, because again, this is about complexity, or get inside his mind time space. Now, I don't quite know what that means, but the point is, this complexity is, who are the, we've said that the, the behavior of the F-36 is in part impacted by the squishy bit between the ears of the American pilot and their context get in between the squishy bits of the Korean pilots. What is yeah. it they expect and understand? Last two, penetrate adversary organism and bring about his collapse. And I, I thought that was such a fascinating language. He is describing the adversary as an organism, not as a machine, yeah. not yeah. as a simple machine, but an organism. And lastly, amplify our spirit and strength, drain away adversaries, and attract the uncommitted. Now, in those one, two, three, four, five, six bullets, that is not make decisions faster. That is an entire comprehensive strategy for winning based on that first point of the OODA loop. Absolutely. And I think what we've done there without explicitly saying it is we've moved this conversation from talking about winning tactical situations, winning a dogfight, to winning strategies. And this is where I think Boyd does deserve a huge amount of credit. And we can discuss whether he's the greatest strategist in Sun Tzu. I'm not sure that's quite where we're at, but he certainly has moved the dial. And he started to talk about how systems thinking affects both human behavior at a tactical level, but it also affects systems thinking. And so he was really interested in taking the lessons obviously from aerial combat and being a fighter pilot but he also started to study and was really interested in the german success against the french and the blitzkrieg and was looking at a lot of the prussian and german philosophies of war so things like alstrap tactic and the the ways that the the german military were doing command and allocating responsibility and authority so that they could be responsive, so that they could make decisions locally that would dislocate the adversary. Um, but he was also really, really interested in the Entebbe raid. So for those of you who, who don't know what that is, this was a an Israeli special forces operation to rescue a load of uh, mostly Israeli Jewish hostages from Uganda in the 1970s. And it was one of those classic counter-terrorist raids where through a combination of guile, shock, surprise, deception, and just sheer courage, the Israeli special forces managed to overwhelm a competitive situation to the point where it completely broke down and rescued all the hostages and and i think the israelis lost one person it did in fact raid. i think it was, actually, the it was the commander of the raid who was actually um benjamin netanyahu's elder brother 
Interesting. And and but, just just to give the little bit of context for that story, so and and to tie it into this sort of the broader OODA loop concept, which was what they did was they landed in a C one thirty and they had a Mercedes which was done up to look like Idi Amin's Mercedes, who was the leader yeah. of them. And so the point was they were expecting to be attacked and then all of a sudden the next thing they see is hang on a minute this is the vehicle of our leader and so they were disrupted rather than saying yeah. kill the invaders they said hang on a minute oh, something's yeah. going on here and the next thing they knew they were of course defeated so a perfect i mean i think at one level why i would imagine he was attracted to that was a perfect example of getting inside the enemy's ooda loop that's a that's yeah, a absolutely and and i think um he He's sort of credited with being one of the great strategists behind Norman Schwarzkopf's success in the in the first Gulf War in '91, and I think there is uncertainty as to quite what level that was. I think I think just to sort of round this off, the fact that a man who had been retired, the fact that he was involved, whether to a significant degree or a lesser degree, to call out to help consult on this, I think shows the broader impact. Well, look, yeah. we've, we've, I think what I've loved about doing these different influencer episodes is that hopefully there's a little bit of unexpectedness here, both in terms of people that you maybe haven't known about or behaviors that don't fit the archetypes of some of these leaders, or even to surprise you. I mean, I, for me, that, that was the one that struck me most when I was looking at this, that a, a, a Genghis, Genghis John that I'd never really heard of you could draw a direct line, direct and clear and thick line between him and the Brexit decision, as an example. I think that's that to me is is a mark of what it means to be an influencer. And it's not about good or bad. Actually, for, for many of these influencers, it's very difficult for us to actually pin down what they did or didn't do or say. But actually, yeah. it is it is the 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 lessons we can draw and the ideas we can pull. It's not always the guys, the John Wayne characters that are going to win. It's not always the people that are doing. It's the philosophy and it's the idea. So, what what are your? I mean, you you spend a lot of time looking looking into John Boyd. What were your kind of top takeaways that you you walked into this thinking this is what we should really capture? Normally, when when you ask these questions, I look at you know what are the traits of that individual that I think gave them success in their particular circumstance. I think for this, the story is where I'm going to to focus because for me, there is a overwhelming sense in all of Boyd's work that it's incomplete, and everything that Boyd says and everything that Boyd has left for us to look at, including videos of him doing, you know, 14 hour lectures and all sorts. He wasn't Actually, a you, you, have to, man. you have to stop and talk about that because you mentioned this before we started. Yeah, he was not a concise man. He would synthesize lots and lots of ideas, but not in a particularly coherent way. And, and, and perhaps one of the criticisms of Boyd is that he doesn't really pull together in a coherent way these simple ideas. So you know, he, he's left us with recordings of three-hour waffles of incoherence which you have to kind of pull out aspects of which is why i think people have been left with this idea of cherry picking either the good bits or the bad bits well, it's but, also why we don't know john boyd as well as we might otherwise have done well absolutely 
But I think also what is very, very clear is that at no point is he saying, these are the answers, this is what you've got to do. What he's saying all the way through is you have to be open to changing your mind. You have to be open to new ideas. You have to make sure that you have a frame of reference. You have to understand where you are. You orient based not only on the new information, not only on the observation, but on your understanding of your own doctrine, on your understanding of the mechanics of how the system works and professional knowledge, but you're not dogmatic. And this is really, really important. And and so Maverick 2, second Top Gun, you know, this, this idea that Maverick is pitched against this Ed Harris character who wants to get rid of all the fighter pilots and make everything drones, you know, that, that's an oversimplification of this idea that you can't reduce everything down to systems and machines and you have to have people in your in your process what i would say about that though is the the film itself has potentially fallen into the trap the other way of lionizing the idea of a manned fighter aircraft or a crewed fighter aircraft and actually you can still have people in the loop without it being behind the cockpit holding the joystick the big takeaway from this is every problem you have you have to Think about it in an, a holistic way, thinking about all of the aspects of it, or as much as you possibly can. You have to have a diverse set of views, ideas, and preconceptions so that you don't fall into these dogmatic traps. You need to then think about how the adversary or other people are thinking about the same situation so that you can reinforce where they will fall into those dogmatic traps and then you start to decide what you're going to do and all the way through this he has been open to the idea of learning new information i wonder whether john void is our new patron saint of the of the podcast because i think that idea of not being dogmatic always searching for new truth and synthesizing other ideas i hope is some of what we capture but maybe with our Top Gun reference as a way to finish this off. Maybe this is a good time to bring this episode to a close. Well, look, thank you, Gareth. I've I've really enjoyed learning more about John Boyd, and hopefully a few people will either spend a bit of time looking at the OODA loop or learning a bit more about John, but a lot for us to chew on. And frankly, as we've said probably a few times before, we really should do the OODA loop in more detail because i think there's so much more to unpack there around complexity but for now you know as we always say we're we're consciously trying to bring more people into this conversation and i'm really pleased i've, I've bumped into lots of people who've started listening to the podcast and they keep saying god this is so relevant there's there's thousands of us that should be listening to this whether it's colleagues at work or friends so please do that if you've found anything we've said on this or other podcasts interesting please go and email a friend, message them a link, share it with them. We'd be really grateful and really pleased if you could do that. We we earn nothing from this, but really we do it because the more people participate in these discussions, the more we get from it, hopefully more you get from it. So please do share. Uh, let us know what you think, whether it's on email or Twitter. Uh, I'm not going to repeat all the addresses because you should know it by now. And if you don't, go listen to another podcast. But for now... I'm just going to say thank you, Gareth. That was good fun. And um, we'll speak to you again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye.